Hey, welcome to the podcast of C3 Los Angeles. I'm Jake Sweetman, and together with my wife, Nicole, we lead this church. We're glad you're here, and we pray that wherever you're tuning in from, that you are encouraged and strengthened by this word. Here's today's message. The title of my message is this, Grace Works. Grace Works. Why don't you write that down uh, in your notes? And uh, I would love it if you just jotted down a few notes as we uh, travel together uh, throughout the scriptures. Um, We are a Bible-centric church. Um, Our second core conviction is that the Bible is his word. If you're wondering what the first is, it's that Jesus is Lord. And so when we come together every Sunday morning, we're feasting upon the living word of God. And so I'm not here to give you my cute ideas. I'm here to give you God's words because this is where life change actually comes from. Amen? Okay, so 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is going to be our core passage today. Uh, This is a letter that a man named Paul wrote to a church in an ancient Roman city called Corinth. And um, the purpose of Paul's letters to the church in Corinth was really to bring some correction and guidance uh, to some activity and and behavior that was taking place there. And um, 1 Corinthians 15 is probably one of my favorite chapters uh, in the Bible. I like it because uh, it puts the gospel before us so front and center and helps us to see uh, what it is that the early Christians believed. Like what were like the core things that they held on to. So that we can look at that and go, okay, are we still following our true north here as the church in 2021? Um, and so in uh, 2022, yeah, sure. It's all blurring together at this point. <clears throat> um, and so in the beginning of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul begins to lay out the gospel. Uh, in fact, it might be helpful. This I didn't give you guys these uh, these verses, but it might be helpful just to read that, um, just so you know what Christians believe. How many think that's a good idea? (laughs) So Paul says in in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, beginning in verse 1, he says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Um, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, uh, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. I really like that terminology there that Paul is saying these things happened according to the Scriptures. Uh, In other words, he's saying the Old Testament pointed towards this reality. And you can understand that in a couple of different ways. You can understand uh, Paul as saying that Jesus Christ died and rose again in accordance with the Scriptures and think of specific passages of Scripture, like uh, Isaiah 53 would be a great picture in the Old Testament where we see the suffering Messiah, but also this figure who, after having died, is then mysteriously still living. That's a picture right there of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. You could also understand Paul as saying, in accordance with the Scriptures, as being in reference to the whole narrative of the Bible. Um, and the redemptive plan that God sets forth throughout the Old Testament. Paul's point is that this was not some plan that God came up in the last, came up with in the last minute to like figure out how to deal with the sin problem. This was God's plan all along, and uh, it happened according to the scriptures. That helps us also understand why we believe that the Bible is God's word, because uh, this is an inspired text. This is something that we can uh, live our lives in accordance with and expect uh, to do well according to how God wants us to live. And that he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, and then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. 
most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Paul's very intentional uh, in telling the Corinthians that Jesus Christ appeared in his resurrected body to more than 500 believers at one time, most of whom were still alive. Uh, What he's saying is that if you want to check my testimony, you can track down some of these people and ask them themselves if they saw the Lord Jesus uh, risen from the grave. And uh, we're going to pick up in verse 8, which is our, uh, the beginning of our core text today, where Paul says this, Last of all, so he appeared to all of these people, last of all, as to one untimely born, uh, literally prematurely born. Paul is talking about how uh, he lacked the time that the other disciples had with Christ during his three-year ministry. Uh, Paul did not have that gestational period, if you will, with Jesus, but rather uh, Jesus Christ appeared to him, some of you know the story, on the Damascus Road as he was on the way to persecute Christians. As to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. I am an apostle by God's grace. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, them being the other apostles. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you Believe. One more time from verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked, everyone say worked, harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me, whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. Grace works. I want to talk to you today about how grace comes with an invitation to work. Uh, One theme that we've repeatedly pointed out throughout the duration of the series is how uh, grace does not stop short at simply the forgiveness of our sins. And we say that not to minimize the importance of our sins being forgiven or to minimize how central our forgiveness is to the gospel. Rather, we say it to express that God's grace uh, expressed in forgiveness is itself about more than just forgiveness. It's also about favor. That is to say that the grace of God comes to us not merely to clear our slate and to pay our debt. His grace also makes a significant deposit into our lives. In other words, the gospel is not that God gets us out of our trouble and then gets us back to square one and says, okay, good luck this time. No, no, no. The gospel is that God gets us out of our trouble, then makes a deposit into our lives to empower us for the kind of life that he wanted us to live in the first place. God in His grace grants to us an abundance that would make anyone who meets you from that moment on question whether you were ever really in such insurmountable debt in the first place. The key to unpacking that gift is, uh, or rather the key is to unpack that gift so that this grace becomes a core feature of your life. And that's what we're aiming to do in this series is to broaden our understanding of what grace is so that grace becomes a defining feature of our existence because grace is God's gift to you and it is far too great a gift to go hiding under a basket. Rather, it should be, should be worn and carried with humility and gratitude for the world to see and to wonder about. And I want to emphasize today this imperative nature of a grace-evident lifestyle when it comes to being disciples of Christ. I think that ensuring the grace of God is visible in your life is not an option for the believer. I believe that it is a biblical necessity. I'm thinking of the parable of the talents in Matthew chapter 25. It's a very famous story that Jesus told about a man who was going on a journey. And before he left, he called to himself three of his servants. And he gave to each of those servants a sum of money called a talent. Um, 
The first servant received five talents, the second received two, and the third servant received one talent. Maybe some of you know the story that the first two servants went to the marketplace and traded with the sum of money that they had been given, and they made more of it. They doubled what they had been given. The third servant was afraid, and so he took his talent, the sum of money, and he buried it in the ground and waited for the master to return so that he could give the talent back in the condition that it came in. The first two, talents, uh, first two servants were celebrated and rewarded for they ha- how they handled the money. The third servant was judged and punished for how he handled the money that was given to him. There are at least two kingdom truths that Jesus is teaching in this parable. Number one, that God in his grace has abundantly given to every single one of his children, no matter what they have received. If they receive five or two or one, every one of them got a lot. You see, a talent was equal to about 16 years worth of salary for a laborer. So Jesus is using metaphorical hyperbole to tell us that no matter what God in his grace has given to you, he has given you an abundance. The other kingdom truth that Jesus is teaching in this parable is that God has an expectation upon us for how we handle that abundance. That third servant put the talent in the ground and gave it right back in that same condition. Didn't harm it, didn't denigrate it, didn't devalue it in any way. Gave it back to him worth the same that it was worth when it was given to him in the first place. And yet the master said, depart from me, you wicked and lazy servant. Because he did not give you his grace into your life for you to babysit what he gave you. He gave it to you so that you could do something with what it is that he gave you. God puts his grace in our life not for us to bury it but to steward it. He wants us to bring it out into the open and use it to promote His glory and advance His kingdom. If grace is abundance, then that means that God has given us something to steward, not store away. In fact, I would say that God does not give to us ever without expectation that we use what He has given with wisdom and generosity. This is very important for us to understand in this series because if grace truly is not just the clearing of our debt, but a deposit into our lives, then we have to therefore ask the question, what do we do with the deposit? The answer to that question is what we could call today working with grace. Just as the first two servants worked with the talents that were given to them, so also we must work with the grace that is given to us. This is why... Uh, we could say, like we did earlier in the series, that grace is anti-earning, but it is not anti-works. In fact, grace is very pro-works. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10 says, For we, this is the church, are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. Why? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So evidently, one of the core things that God had in mind before you were reborn were the works, the good works that you would do for His glory before you even came to Him. And these works are carried out not as some payback to God for how we've been saved by grace, but rather as the ongoing reality of His grace working in and through our lives. And as soon as we accept that fact that God's grace wants to go to work in your world to actually propel you beyond where He found you, then you can begin working with grace. And that is my goal today, is to help us determine how do we know if we're working with the grace of God. And so I thought, I want to ask you guys four questions today for us to answer and for you to continually answer so that you can determine whether you're working with God's grace, not only in this season, but in all the seasons of life that are to come. Here's the first question. Why don't you write it down? Who are you working with? 
This is the number one question that has to be answered in order to determine if we're working with grace. Because grace is not some impersonal force. Grace is the activity of God's love and God's power and God's wisdom towards us, in us, through us, and as it regards our work, even with us. Pay attention to how Paul phrased it in that passage in 1 Corinthians 15. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown in their commentary on this passage say that Paul speaks of this grace as with him rather than simply in him or on him. This way of putting it almost makes grace a fellow laborer working alongside Paul in what God has called him to do. So this is an amazing picture that Paul gives us here in this text, stating clearly that the grace of God has been with him in his work and is still with him in his work. That made me think of a real-life example in Acts chapter 14 when Paul uh, and one of his colleagues, Barnabas, are about to embark on Paul's very first missionary uh, journey. And they're based out of a church in the city of Antioch. And they get sent out of that place and they travel a little bit around the Roman Empire and they preach the gospel. And in Acts 14 and verse 26, it says, uh, uh, from there, that is from the last city in their missionary journey, they sailed to Antioch, where their sending church was, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work. They had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and they gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had, how he had opened a door to faith to the Gentiles. So notice how they describe their missionary journey, first of all, as having been commended, literally handed over to the grace of God for the purpose of fulfilling a certain work, which then they call God doing that work with them. John Stott, brilliant theologian, says, On arrival, they gathered the church and reported what God had done through them, literally with them, in conjunction with them as his instruments, his agents, and his co-workers. You see, grace is not God doing things instead of you doing things. Grace is not you doing things while God gives you well wishes. Grace is God empowering us to do the things that he wants us to do so that in actual fact, he is doing them with us. Who are we working with when we're working with grace? We're working with Jesus. Specifically, we're working with the Spirit of Jesus who has been sent to empower us for the fulfillment of all of God's plan in our lives. Uh, recall John chapter 1 and verse 14 that says Jesus is full of grace and truth. And in verse 16, that from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Maybe you've heard it said before that Jesus is the personification of grace. That he is the grace of God made visible. So that Paul, decades later, after he himself got saved and committed his life to advancing the kingdom of God, reflects upon Jesus Christ coming into the world. And he says in Titus chapter 2 and verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Jesus incarnate was the appearance of of grace in a way that was not equally seen or experienced up until that point in human history. He is the grace of God with us, who makes us a people, Paul goes on to say, who are zealous for good works. Who are we working with when we're working with grace? We are quite literally working with Jesus himself. And of course, is this not one of Jesus' primary invitations to you and I? In Matthew it says, come to me, all who labor. This is Jesus speaking. 
and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That sounds quite nice. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. A yoke is a wooden tool that was used to partner two oxen together for the work that they had to do in plowing a field. The point of the yoke is to connect an older, stronger ox with a younger, less experienced, weaker ox so that the younger can learn from the elder. And Jesus says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and lay down for a little while. No, he didn't say that. He says, come to me, you who labor and are heavy laden, and take my yoke upon you. He said, yoke yourself to me. We are the younger ox reaping the strength and the reward of the older ox. And what he's doing is he's training us to renounce the old life and to put on the new life, which involves the work that he has for us and the work that he, picture it, does with us. Now, this is a certain kind of work that is qualified as something entirely different even restful compared to the performative work that is concerned with appearances like the people we're used to seeing in the Pharisees, but it is work nonetheless. And we all know this passage because of its invitation to rest. But you should equally know it because of its invitation to work. Because that's what a yoke is for. And when you yoke yourself to Jesus, you learn the rhythms of his resting and his working And you live in such a way that is aimed truly at experiencing God's power, not merely just performativity. So let's make this practical, this first point. If working with grace is working with Jesus, then how do we work with Jesus? Uh, I'm sure there are many ways that we could talk about that. I'm just going to give you two. The first is prayer. Prayer is the daily putting on of his yoke. Prayer is agreeing to go at his pace and to do his will. When you yoke yourself to Christ, you are saying, not my will, but yours be done. Because that yoke will not allow the oxen to go in different direction and to be concerned with different activities. They have got to be caught up in the same activity. And so when you come to God in prayer each day, you are literally yoking yourself to Christ and saying, whatever you would like me to do today is what I am here to do. Prayer, in addition, is also the exercise of sharing your burdens with Jesus so that you can trust the outcome of those things with Him and therefore not have to expend all of your energy working for the bread that does not satisfy. Instead, you can yoke yourself to Christ for the work that He is doing. We cannot work with Christ very well if we are not in the habit of speaking with Him. And prayer is that conversation that you and I are invited to participate in in every single day. It's also the place where you grow in your awareness of his nearness to your life and you wait to sense his leading and his guidance. You would be surprised if you made yourself a person of prayer and gave yourself to daily prayer, I would say especially in the mornings, you'd be amazed at how much Jesus equips you for the rest of your day. He might even begin to show you people that he wants you to talk to, conversations that he'd like you to have. He might reveal some stuff that's going on in your heart that he would like you to confess and deal with because it's acting as an inhibition to his plan for your life. Jesus has an opinion about how you spend your time. We would do well as Christians to seek what that opinion is so that we can bring our lives into accordance and experience life the way that he intends us to experience it. 
The second practical way that we can work with Jesus is through the church. The church is the body of Christ. And together, together in unity, possesses what 1 Peter 4.10 calls the manifold grace of God. Maybe your translation says the varied grace of God. The picture is that God in his grace has supplied each individual in his church with different gifts that are designed to complement each other. And this reality is not a nicety. It is a necessity. This is a picture that every single one of us needs to get on board with and expect it to bring blessing, not only to us, but also blessing through us to the people that we are in the church with. Just as God's grace mandates our work, so also that work mandates our interdependence with each other as fellow workers who are each empowered for various and complementary tasks. If we use Paul as an example, one of the ways that grace was visibly with him was seen in the fact that God always supplied him with the right partners. From Barnabas to John Mark to Timothy to Silas to Luke to Titus to the long litany of people that Paul lists out in Romans chapter 16, we see that God was always supplying the people who not only propelled Paul into ministry, but who supported him in his ministry. And I would just say today, I want the same to be true of us. And if we do not come into alignment with how God wants us to work with him through the church, then we will be without hope in fulfilling his desire to go to work with grace in our own lives. To work with grace is to work with Christ. And you you cannot work with Christ if you do not work with Christ's body. Who are we working with when we're working with grace? We're working with Jesus. Question number two. What are you working with? Working with grace means that we pay attention to the tools that God has given us as an expression of his manifold grace. This is exactly Peter's point in that verse that we just read. These gifts are, or tools, are what the New Testament calls gifts of the Holy Spirit or spiritual gifts. Paul also calls these gifts in 1 Corinthians 12, 7, manifestations of the Spirit for the common good. That word manifestation is literally revelation, which means to plainly set forth. So just as God plainly set forth His grace in Jesus Christ, so also God, listen to this, God plainly sets forth, forth His grace through the manifestation of the Spirit through your spiritual gifts. Therefore, to work with grace is to work with the gifts that God gave in His grace to you. Paul says in Romans chapter 12 and verse 6, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. That is the ones that God gave to you. And then Paul goes on to list a handful of spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts are categorized in various ways in four different places in the New Testament. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, and 1 Peter chapter 4. And as I said a few moments ago, we're going to do a deep dive later in the year into the subject of spiritual gifts aimed at the intention of you discerning and discovering what it is that God has sovereignly given to you. For now... We must know that the moment you were saved, you have to get this. You have to, have to, have to get this. The moment you were saved, God in His grace, not because you earned it, not because you were qualified for it, not because God checked with your friends and family and made sure that these would be the right gifts for you, but God in His sovereignty, by His grace, gave you gifts the moment that you came to faith in Jesus Christ. And those gifts are for the purpose of... Uh, 
of expounding the kingdom, of expanding the kingdom, of bringing the gospel into the world around you. And you and I have to know what God gave us so that we can participate in that work. Your gifts are probably not the same as my gifts. And your gifts are probably not the same as the gifts of the person who was sitting next to you and vice versa. And that is good and right because we are called to operate in interdependence with one another. And these gifts are absolutely vital to our effectiveness in fulfilling the Great Commission. If you're going to work with grace, you have to work with what grace gave you. You can't work with what God and His grace gave somebody else. And if you try to work with what grace gave someone else, then you won't be working with grace. You'll be mimicking them. And there won't be any real power. You have to know what grace gave you because guess what? That's where the impact lies. That's where the the actual fruitfulness is. And fruitfulness is a really important thing to consider when we're thinking about whether or not we're working with grace because when you're working with the gifts that God has given to you, they will be empowered by Him. And therefore, you will regularly see positive outcomes. When you're working with the grace of God, it's not that there won't be obstacles. There will be absolutely obstacles. Just read the book of Acts and see all of these great men and women who were working with what God gave them. And they came across tons and tons of obstacles. But on the whole, when we work with the grace of God, we will see positive outcomes. If we're graced for healing the sick, then we will see people get healed. If we're graced in evangelism, we will see people get saved. If we're graced for teaching, people will grow in their knowledge of God from our Bible teaching. If we're approaching situations with, uh, with what grace empowers us to do, then we will see fruitfulness occur. Because the power of God is going to work in that gift. I want you to understand today that the gifts of the Holy Spirit are not a fringe subject in the New Testament. They appear in so many instances in the Gospels, in the book of Acts, all throughout the epistles. Revelation exists because of prophetic vision that the Apostle John is having. Paul makes direct reference to spiritual gifts in some way in every single one of his letters, by my count except for Philippians and Colossians. The reason he wrote about gifts of the Spirit in these letters is not because he was teaching them something new. It wasn't like Paul went to these churches, got a bunch of people saved, left, and then wrote them a letter saying, oh, by the way, I forgot to tell you about something ancillary to the gospel. Let's make sure we tack this on. Now, the reason Paul wrote in his letters about the gifts of the Holy Spirit is because those gifts were already at work in the churches, and Paul was bringing guidance to activity that was already happening. The gifts of the Holy Spirit are not some, uh, some appendage that just gets tacked on to the church experience. No, they are an absolutely central aspect to your experience of following Jesus. And so many Christians go the entirety of their Christian life without ever seeking out how God has sovereignly gifted them. So unlike the third servant in the parable of the talents who buried his grace, these Christians never uncover their grace in the first place. Let's not allow that to be any of our stories. Let's uncover our spiritual gifts so that God's grace can work with us in the activities and the ministries to which He has called us to. What are you working with when you're working with grace? You're working with what grace gave you. You're working with the gifts that you have. Don't be sitting there thinking, well, I don't have any gifts. You absolutely do. You might just not know what they are yet. Question number three, what are you working for? This connects back to the question of who we are working with. Since working with grace means working with Jesus... That means that working with grace is working for the same goal, 
that Jesus himself is achieving. This goal can be stated a few different ways. We could call it building the church. We could call it making disciples. We could call it expanding the kingdom. We could call it helping one another to mature in Christ. These all speak to the same reality that Jesus Christ is superintending and empowering the spread of the gospel so that people everywhere would turn from sin and idolatry and trust in him for salvation and then become functioning members of his body. Therefore, if we're going to work with Jesus, it will also mean that we make his goal our highest purpose in life. This is what we work for when we work with grace. We say it like this here at C3LA, that our purpose is to make and multiply disciples of Jesus who walk in the truth of the Scriptures by the power of the Spirit for the sake of God's love. The question then for each of us is how we go about working for that outcome amidst our daily routines. Because when we think about working for the goal that Jesus is achieving right now, we tend to think in the context of church programs. And church programs are great and helpful and beneficial if they're geared towards what Jesus is achieving. But my question to you today is how do you make your life, if you're working with Jesus and you're working with the gifts that Jesus gave you, how do you orient your life to work for the same outcome that Jesus right now in heaven is achieving in the earth? There is no other way to live for the Christian uh, uh, today. Like this is the only chief purpose that defines our life. If we live our lives outside of that purpose, then we're bringing our lives outside of context. If you want to bring your life in context, it's to yoke yourself with Jesus and say, Jesus, what are you doing right now? Great, that's what I want to do as well. That's the way that Christians are called to live. So how do you bring this into the reality of your own daily routine? And the answer is fairly simple. Right? Like you just love as you've been loved because love opens the door to the gospel. You promote the unity and the edification of the body. Taking a look at all of the one another verses in the New Testament is a great place to start. Seeking to discover and practice your gifts is a great place to begin. These all things, these things all produce the kingdom outcome that you and I have been called to and that's what grace works for. Grace works for kingdom outcomes in every single scenario. It can get really practical. You can look at how Jesus invites us to work with him in the Sermon on the Mount. And see that it produces kingdom outcomes across the whole spectrum of our lives. You can look at Paul's application of working with grace throughout his letters. And it shows us that it produces kingdom outcomes in all kinds of practical ways. Working with grace impacts things like my relationships. It makes my marriage better. It makes me a better employee, a better boss. It helps me to raise my children and honor my parents. It helps me to work through disagreement and offense. It helps me to properly steward my money. Working with grace produces kingdom outcomes in all of these areas. And we could dive into any one of those alone and do a whole sermon series on them. But today I just want to point out something important when it comes to working for what Jesus is working for when it comes to partnering yourself with grace. And it's this. Grace doesn't work in the church alone. And grace isn't going to work in the church alone. Grace also goes to work in the world. We are often so quick to think of God's grace at work in the church and how we can partner with him in what he's doing within the confines of these four walls or within the context of our group. And that is absolutely a biblical reality. God's grace is building up the church. That's Ephesians chapter 4. But working with God's grace does not confine us to Sunday morning. Working with God's grace does not confine us to whatever time our neighborhood group meets. In fact, if you're only working with grace when you're amongst the church, then we're not going into all the places that grace wants to go. If God's grace could cross the universe, why can't it cross, cross the threshold of our workplaces? Why can't it cross over from our kingdom family into our biological family? Why can't it go from working amongst those who are in Christ to those who are still in Adam? Yeah. 
Biblically speaking, it absolutely can. If you and I are going to work with grace, it means that we will take grace into the world. You see, it's not that there is not a boundary that exists between the church and the world. There is, in fact, a very distinct boundary, just like there's a distinct boundary between heaven and earth. What makes grace so great is not that it eliminates boundaries so that there is no distinction between the church and the world. What makes grace so great is that it so effortlessly, so lovingly, so willingly crosses the boundary for the sake of serving others and pointing them to Jesus who brings them into the family of God. If I have something that is unmatched in awe and splendor, and I want everybody else to experience the awe and the splendor, then I have two options. Number one, I can call everything everywhere awesome and splendid. Or number two, I can live in accordance with the biblical reality that there is absolutely a distinction between the body of Christ and the world. And I can invite people to truly experience real awe and splendor by coming into the kingdom. You see, this is the power of grace, not in pretending that there is no boundary between what God is doing in the church and what's happening in the world. And that's what a lot of people would like to do. The real power of grace is in working for an unrighteous world to make its way into the righteous body of Christ. And if Jesus Christ crossed the stars to do it, surely you and I can cross the street to do it. And if we really are working with grace, then we will work for the outcome of people coming from the world into the kingdom. If you think about that mission in connection to the spiritual gifts that we've been talking a little bit about, you'll see once again why it's so important to know how God has gifted you. Because um, your gifts are meant to be fruitful, not just amongst these people and in this place. Your gifts are also meant to be fruitful in the workplace. Your gifts are meant to be fruitful in your neighborhood. Your gifts gifts are meant to be uh, fruitful everywhere that you go. And it's really important that you discover those gifts because that's where the result of God bringing people into the world through your gifts is going to happen. Uh, wonderful man named Mike Maiden said to me in 2020, uh, he said, there's an undeniable connection between the gifts of the Spirit and the harvest that is in God's heart. There's an undeniable connection between your spiritual gifts and the harvest of souls that is in God's heart to come into the kingdom. As soon as he said that to me, I thought of a story uh, in the Gospel of John where Jesus is at the, wo- at the well and there's a woman there who's got quite a sordid past. And Jesus connects with this woman and begins a conversation with her. And he shares with her what we would call uh, a word of knowledge. He says that you've been married five times and the man that you're with right now is not your husband. So this woman has been with six different men and she's living a life that is not honoring God. She's living in sin. Jesus gives that word of knowledge to her, which then leads her to come to faith in Christ, which then leads the entire village that she lives in in Samaria to also come to faith in Christ. An entire harvest of a town, of a village, came to faith in Christ because of one word of knowledge. There is a direct connection between your spiritual gifts and the harvest that is in God's heart. You and I cannot afford to go on living unaware of how God has gifted us because there are souls that hang in the balance coming into the kingdom of God because of how God has gifted you and I. The worship team can come and I'll close with one last question.
Question number four, who gets the credit? And we'll just save the suspense and give the answer up front. <laughs> Jesus gets the credit when you're working with grace. How do you know you're working with grace? When you're concerned with His glory and not your own. You read Paul's words in that 1 Corinthians 15 passage, and at first it can kind of sound like boasting. But Paul says a really important statement in there. Verse 10, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I. The NIV just has it, these three words, yet not I. I worked so hard, but it wasn't me. And this is like not a one-off thing for Paul to mention. This is in fact a feature of how he understands living for Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 6, I planted, Apollos watered. But God gave the growth. Second Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 5. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 13. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Paul preached the sermons. Paul healed the sick. Paul built the church. Paul installed the, the leaders. Paul did all of this work. Yet he says, it's not me. It's actually God who works in you yet not I. I think about these three words in terms of what Paul endured and what Paul accomplished in his ministry, in all of his journeys. And when I think about Paul's life, it becomes that much more of an incredible claim. I thought about what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 23. He says, are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hand of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst, often without food in cold and exposure and apart from other things there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all of the churches and still he would say yet not I but the grace of God is with me <laughs> the really impressive part about all of that to me is that Paul is describing things, these things not as something that God's grace carried him out, him out of but as something that God's grace actually carried him into He's like, this is my resume of terrible things that have happened to me, yet not I, but the grace of God. God deserves the glory for all of the wild stuff that I've been through. He's like, grace made me do it. Paul understood the grace of God as empowering him to lead the life that is actually the deep desire of every single Jesus follower. In fact, you cannot be a Jesus follower and not desire that kind of risky life because Jesus, if you're following him, he's not leading you into comfortable places. He's leading you into risky places. He's leading you into fruitful places. He's leading you into places that aim at his glory, not your comfort. Yet not I, but the grace of God is with me. This is how you know you're working with grace. You get faith to do really scary things. 
because on the other side of the scary thing is the glory of God and grace is concerned chiefly with God's glory. Let's all stand to our feet. If you and I embrace here today that all of our kingdom activity is for the sake of Jesus getting the credit, that will help us to be less concerned with what people think about us in the process and more with what people think about him in the end. And when you're caught up in what people are going to think about him on the other side of your sacrifice, on the other side of your obedience, on the other side of your faith, it will motivate you to go through with what God is calling you to do. How do you know you're working with grace? You're working with Jesus. You're working with the gifts that he gave you. You're working for kingdom outcomes. And you're concerned with the credit that he's going to get on the other side. Let's give God one great big praise here today. You've been listening to the C3 Los Angeles podcast. If you found today's message helpful, we encourage you to share it with a friend and consider rating it. If you'd like more information about our church or details on how to get connected to a neighborhood group, head to c3losangeles.com. We love you. Thanks for tuning in with us.